Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Maham McCann podcast, a fortnightly philosophy and lifestyle podcast unpacking creative people's philosophies and stories. This week, I'm joined by the authors of The Good Life Method, Megan Sullivan and Paul Blasco, who are both professors of philosophy at Notre Dame University in the US. The Good Life Method is a a guide, more or less, to reason through the questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. Uh, It's an exceptional book. I highly recommend getting your hands on it. I will include a link where you can purchase it in the description. And in this podcast, we talk about faith, religion, um, Christianity, Catholicism, ethics, is it possible to have an ethical society and a secular society? Uh, we talk about metaverse, some technology topics, telling stories to yourself. This one has really hit a lot of deep chords for me. Um, it was a really, really good conversation and got very into the meat of things very quickly. So I'm sure for those of you that are deep thinkers and appreciate a no-nonsense approach to the questions of life, you're really going to enjoy this podcast. As always, if you want to follow along with the podcast, subscribe on YouTube, follow along on Spotify, follow along on Instagram, and stay in touch. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. Welcome back, everybody. I am joined today by Megan Sullivan and Paul Blasco, the authors of The Good Life Method. So welcome, Megan and Paul. Thank you so much for having us. I also hey, have my copy here. here. <laughs> and I will put the... I'm the only one without a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I got to put it the link below as well, because everybody needs to read it. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing book and a beautiful introduction, I think, to some really important ideas, uh, which hopefully we will discuss in the course of this conversation. I want I suppose for people that haven't read it, um I know I you touch on it in the book and everything, but what was kind of the motivation for doing it? I wonder if you want to give like, you know, what really interested you in the topic and writing a book about it. I can yeah. kick off or go for it. Yeah, go for it, Megan. Yeah, I'll kick off and Paul can feel I mean we might have even slightly different motivations too at various points, but mm-hmm. I think with the book, um, Paul and I have been teaching this big introductory philosophy class on the good life here at Notre Dame for um, for years now. And the point of the class is to get students really excited about the idea that philosophy and spending time contemplating can help them get a better handle on what happiness is going to mean for their lives and their plan from getting from the lives they're currently living to that point. And we've been really fired up to teach the class because obviously a lot of 18, 19 year olds have big existential questions about why are they here and what are they gonna what they're gonna do with their lives. And one thing that we realized pretty soon after we started teaching the class here is that a lot of adults who are not in college also have these questions. And, and for what it's worth, on, on my personal end, there there are a billion books and podcasts about happiness out there. And a lot of really interesting advice that comes to us from like business podcasts about how to be a better employee or be a better manager or positive psychology podcasts about like how to stick to your diet or your running plan. Um, But there seem to be very few entry points for people who want to ask the big all encompassing philosophical questions about their good life, which are also deeply practical questions. And one of the things we talk about with our students and we try to show with a bunch of cases in the book is that questions about how you manage your money or how you manage your family life or how you think about yourself as an employee or what you do on Sunday mornings are philosophical questions that you deserve the time and space to think about and that philosophy can give you advice on just as much as psychology and business advice can give you advice in those dimensions of your life. And what about yeah, you? I guess uh, the only thing... Yeah, good. So the only thing I would add to that is... Um, you know, the book is is really structured almost in the same way that we teach our class. 
And so each of the chapters takes on a different area of the good life. Uh, like Megan said, you know, the, the sort of financial good life. How do you spend your money or how should you spend your money if you're going to live a good life? There's a chapter on work. You know, what kind of work should you be looking for uh, if you want to ultimately end up happy? Uh, or is, is that even the ultimate goal, right? You can question everything in philosophy. You might think like happiness is great, but look, I would rather live a meaningful, miserable life than, than a happy one, right? Uh, so these questions, uh, you know, each of them uh, uh, has a chapter. And then toward the end of the chapter, we actually do some of the exercises that we do in our class. So we say like, you know, take out your journal or like call your friend. And here's a list of questions that you can ask them that you can use to start a dialogue. Uh, and I'd say, you know, like, like Megan, you know, having these conversations with 20 year olds uh, just made me realize how many of these were open questions in my own life. Uh, I kind of went back and thought like, gosh, like uh, uh, I can learn something from Aristotle here. Uh, and then, you know, our students will report uh, that their families will follow along with our class. Our, our class is, is on the internet. So you can just, you know, go to it and, and, and you know, click, click on you know, whatever particular day we're on. And they'll tell us like, look, like my parents are actually reading the texts in your class and we have discussions about it over dinner. Uh, and so to have the opportunity to put that in a format that's even easier to do that with, right? Like to have kind of a book club or a, a, a sort of weekly family dialogue, you know, uh, to me, that was just an incredible opportunity. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And it kind of, it struck me, I because I was reading the bit about the class being so popular and I did an undergraduate in philosophy as well. And I know I would have loved something like that because I, I was always looking for classes with that type of bend to it. I kind of gravitated more. There was a class called, I think it was meaning in life or something, but it mainly focused on kind of Eastern philosophy. Um, and that was about as close as I got, unfortunately, to the good life. And I wonder, is there part of what you're doing responding maybe to the need that people have for this type of uh, content probably isn't the right word, but um, this type of thinking and also an absence maybe in the academic curriculum or something in academic philosophy that isn't being fulfilled? Yeah, I think, so Socrates talks about philosophy. Socrates, the founder of the feast 2,400 years ago, talks about philosophy as being, first and foremost, care for our soul. Yeah. Uh, and Aristotle, his kind of grand student after Plato, talks about philosophers oftentimes with the analogy of like a physician. Mm, like he thinks so. of himself as prescribing things to think about, habits to try out, not to improve your body. That's what physicians do but to help improve uh, your thought. And for ages, basically until about 100 years ago, everybody thought that philosophy was in this business of helping each other think seriously and care for our soul when we, when we face these inevitable philosophical problems. What do I really owe other people? Am I aiming at the right kinds of overarching goals in my life? Why am I here? What is it to be me? Um, and then a hundred years ago, we just kind of like philosophy got bifurcated and a lot of other subdisciplines came out and it started to become a lot more about really intense study of these ideas as though they were dead and not live questions for us. And so one of the ways that I think the class has turned out to be really magical and we hope the book will translate this is we listen to students, we get to know them really well. A lot of them, you know, we follow through their entire course at Notre Dame and problems come at them and they come talk with us about it. And a lot of their problems we can't solve. <laughs> sometimes we refer them to student health center or like the chaplaincy or back to their parents. But sometimes they come to us with philosophical problems and we're like, you know what? You really need to read some Kierkegaard. Let me, I'm going to write you a prescription <laughs> yeah. for this passage. I want you to go check this out and I want you to think about it. Yeah, or Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> and once the, once we kind of got the, the flavor for that, um, we realized, like, you know, I remember I would start getting uh, getting emails being like, hey, we got this group of medical professionals in Boston that really want to talk about nihilism and are looking for a philosopher to come in and, like, you know, make them a prescription. Like, hey, can you just explain well, a little bit about different ways that people think about nihilism because we're struggling with it right now? I did a real event like that right around the time we were deciding about writing the book. And just realizing that, like, philosophers playing this role of really engaging and kind of leaning into the, the actual philosophical problems of our own time. Um, it's something, it's work that we ought to be doing. It's certainly work that universities should be doing. Yep. Yeah. And what about you, Paul? Is there anything you want to add to that? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll just, you know, color in some of the details here uh, uh, in the story that Megan was sketching out. Look, uh, the Stoics think that the fundamental problem of life is that we're anxious and that we're like just riddled with anxiety. And they think the thing to do about that is, you know, I mean, certainly like, you know, caring for your body and caring for your mind and your mental health and everything. Certainly, you know, that's important. But the real sort of core of the issue is to do philosophic, philosophical therapy, right? They had a therapeutic mode of philosophizing to write notes to yourself, reminding you that the things that you tend to worry about, the things that you really care about and invest yourself in, if they're external contingent things, like getting famous or getting wealthy, uh, those things might never happen. And you, if that's what it takes for you to live a fulfilled life, if you think like that, like I will not be fulfilled unless I acquire those things, then you're in trouble because likely you won't acquire those things, right? And so they say, you know, consider another approach. Think about whether, you know, the things that matter most in life might be virtue, might be the love that you have for your family. And think about how you can at any moment, anywhere in the world, close your eyes and retreat into this inner life that will never be taken from you, that nothing external can take from you. Now, there's a lot of substantive theses and assumptions in that picture, right? And part of the, the fun of philosophy is that we get to pick it all apart and we get to say like, well, actually, I don't know, can, can external things take these things from you? It kind of seems like maybe they can, right? Like if I get a, a brain transplant, it seems like all my virtues are gone and, and all my vices, my personality itself. I don't know. Okay. So we can totally debate these things and discuss these things and think really critically about them. Uh, but, but, you know, not losing touch with this idea that philosophy has a very practical, very everyday, very therapeutic sort of mode, uh, I think is just essential. I think, you know, evidence that, that like you, you, you said, you know, in academia, there's some gaps here. There's some, some interest that, that maybe isn't, isn't being met yet. Uh, met yet. There's some needs. Uh, uh, a couple of years back, we started working with faculty here and all around the country on this kind of philosophy. And people are just going crazy for it. Like hundreds of academics Ooh. are like, I want to be part of that. There are now, you know, wow. book series about philosophy as a way of life. Oh, uh, conferences as you say, and, was... uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, boom! Awesome. Look at that, love it. Got the Pierre Hadot the there in the back right pocket. There. <laughs> the man yeah. well. But that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's so yeah, it's yeah. so great to see that that's actually something that's occurring because it's something that I found in my own life, particularly with stoicism uh, during the pandemic, and it being super useful for these cognitive tools, but also as a value system. And there's something I wanted to touch on with you, because obviously you guys are teaching in a Catholic school and then you're dealing with God and the good life. Um, I was raised secular, so I never had any kind of like religious tradition or anything and kind of fell into philosophy maybe as a way of, you know, negotiating values or what goals were worth pursuing. And I wonder, do you think some of that hunger for this kind of philosophical medicine comes from a secular society you know i was going to ask you the question of can you have an ethical education yeah. in a secular society yeah. sorry i'm throwing in big ones now but. I think, <laughs> oh yeah i love it i'm going to take the first question and then uh uh yeah oh, maybe we can talk about the roll. education bit but mm -hmm. yesterday literally yesterday i was sitting at a bar here in south uh south bend downtown south bend uh with two of my really good friends Justin Christie, who teaches the course God in the Good Life here at Notre Dame uh, and works on it, uh, develops it, runs our fellows program. And then one of our first fellows, Sam Kennedy, he was one of our first fellows in the program. Uh, we're all sort of just like on fire for this kind of philosophy, this way of philosophy. Justin is, I, I think he would describe himself as an atheist or an agnostic. Uh, Sam is a secular naturalist uh, atheist, like adamant atheist, right? Mm -hmm. And we were sitting around like eating beer nuts and drinking pints. And we were asking this question, is there such a thing as uh, atheist spirituality? And the reason I was curious about this is because as a Catholic and as a philosopher, spirituality means this very particular thing to me. And not just... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the kind of thing that happens when I go to church or when I go to confession or whatever it might be. Uh, it means, you know, this openness to a reality that could be transcendent, that could be, you know, accessed through this kind of stoic meditation, whatever. And I was just wondering, is that something that they see in uh, philosophy? And is that something that they see uh, uh, in, you know, what, what's so attractive about it? Uh, and again, just from their testimony, the answer to that is absolutely yes, right? 
you know, to have a mode of engaging with reality opening up, whether that's stoic contemplation or whether that's, um, you know, like Justin is like a, a Neoplatonist. Anyway, he's got amazing, just really complex, intricate views. It's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, again, Sam, our, our fellow, you know, in his apology essay that he wrote for the class, you know, one of the things that he was grappling with was he was, you know, kind of the opposite sort of view. He was raised religious and then became very, very uh, uh, adamant in this sort of atheistic worldview. Uh, and for him, philosophy and the course itself was a way of, of explaining and making intelligible that as a worldview, as a system of values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know sociologically whether this is, uh, you know, helping to explain kind of the reaction and the response that we've gotten to the course in the book. But I can certainly say in individual cases, uh, uh, I definitely see that, like just anecdotally, I definitely see that as, as part of what's interesting in the course to some people. Yeah, I think on my end, we're all looking for a way of life um, and we're all worried about if we've got the right one. I think, you know, regardless of your experience with religion um, or living in a community that claims it already has a way of life, like we all want to know, are we doing this right or do we have the right goals? This is just distinctively human worry. And we're really unhappy with superficial answers. Like you might think like running or CrossFit is my way of life, but we realize that only lasts like at most a couple of years and then you start to get bored or you get unsettled or you want to improve CrossFit. Um, so we're, we're, you know, it's something that as humans, we're just wired to think and worry about. And for folks who are coming, who've never had exposure to religion, I think there's a lot of curiosity and skepticism that religious ways of life are working for them. Yesterday was Ash Wednesday. I had conversations mm-hmm. with two separate people who are like, Catholicism is dead as a way of life. Like, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like Catholicism doesn't have anything to offer me anymore. One was a student, one was an adult. And for them, I think actually philosophy as a way of life is also incredibly important because you might think that a religious tradition like Catholicism or Judaism or Islam has got a whole script that if you just read it and follow it, you will have the way of life and you'll have access to the good things. And if that's what you expect out of religious life, you are going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to find it to be like meaningless or dead for you because like that's just not how it works. Um, to, to like kind of access a, ca- a distinctively Catholic way of life, you got to pay into it. Like you've got to think about some things. You've got to write the 21st century books that explain God and his role in the world. Um, you can't just think that going through the motions of the way that somebody lived in this tradition a hundred years ago is going to continue to be the way that that tradition is going to live out for you. And philosophy within a religious tradition has been in the business of helping you figure out what this way of life looks like in the circumstances that you find yourself in now in your life. And so that's where, you know, we talk about prescribing, um, like, you know, questions from religious philosophy to people who are really skeptical is one area where this kind of philosophy really helps. But also, like, people who used to be interested in finding value and meaning in their religious lives, and now it leaves them cold or they find it to be dead, you think, like, well, philosophy might help you revive some of the, the, like, love and appreciation and sense of agency and feeling like you're actually part of Catholicism and not just going Mm. through the motions anymore. Mm. Yeah, see, this is so interesting because I'm coming from the completely opposite side. I've been thinking about getting baptized, as my listeners will know about. <laughs> I've considered oh, wow. the possibility. Do it! I'm going to get peer pressured now into it. <laughs> Go for it! Do it, do it. So there might be Take hope, yeah, for the Catholicism. <laughs> but it, very interesting because I, I would have been, like, militantly atheist when I was younger. Like, the type of kid that, like... In school, I was refusing to take a Bible. I would sit out of the classroom. I was like the the bold boy, basically, in that <laughs> regard. But um, I just kind of, yeah, growing up, I suppose, uh, Jordan Peterson, I think, was a big influence as well with the secular interpretation. I don't know if you've seen his biblical series and kind of presenting this, like, psychological language which you could access religion with again. And John Verveke, his work, uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So there's been these kind of thinkers that have kind of, for me anyway, opened the door again to that possibility that when I was younger, it was much more that you go to church, piety, you know, Irish kind of Catholicism. Um, But there seems to be kind of a new angle to it. Like in Harvard, what is it? The School of Divinity studying psychedelics. And there's this kind of 
I think there's new waves, maybe um, new inroads being made, but um, maybe that's a different story. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of a, yeah, well, the interesting hmm. thing about oh, sorry, go ahead. Philosophy, philosophy is like you can you can get those questions about the Harvard mm-hmm. Divinity School, like you know, like is can psychedelics be an important part of a way of life? You might you know just have this instinctive answer like no or yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the upshot of philosophy is like all right, let's think about this. Like, let's yeah. see what we know about uh, the mind. Let's see what we know about religious life. Let's see what we know about experience and what it means to experience things that are valuable. And you can like reason your way to a better answer to that question rather than just believing what you're told. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are looking for it. I mean, my observation a lot uh, amongst millennials and amongst Gen Z people is that they're dealing with massive ethical problems, but with very little tools to actually comprehend them. Or I think for me as a secular, growing up secular, you were bereft of any tradition that could help you make sense of things. And these are big questions that, you know, going back to Socrates 2,400 years ago. So if you expect some 16-year-old or 18-year-old to just pop out with the answers with nothing, um, I think it's, it puts young people in a compromising position. That's why I think work like this is so valuable, um, because it gives some entrance into the type of kind of that thought and because it is, I mean, like, like you're saying, like philosophy is itself a tradition, right? Like mm-hmm. it is something that goes all the way back yep. to, to Plato and Socrates mm-hmm. and uh, that was happening simultaneously all over the world at the same time, right? Uh, and, and you can kind of jump between those traditions and, and use the insights from, uh, you know, like one, one of the things I've been just most uh, uh, impressed by is, you know, the way that Confucian virtue ethics sheds light on some of the things Aristotle says, or the way that that, that the epistemology that people were doing in India um, in the ancient world Mm -hmm. uh, matches up almost one-to-one with some of the debates that have happened in the sort of Enlightenment era, right? Uh, So so to provide uh, that kind of a context, that kind of a framework, that kind of a really rich history, Mm -hmm. uh, and one that, you know, doesn't have maybe some of the barriers that you were referencing, right? Uh, the kind of um, uh, either, you know, sort of uh, dogmatic uh, uh, requirement. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, like, you know, having to believe something in an orthodox way in order to belong to the, to the thing. But that it's a, a tradition that you can kind of work your way into. And then once you're there, uh, sort of, you know, consider other sort of traditions and other, uh, um, you know, potential ways of life. I mean, I think that's one of the, the really fascinating and really valuable things about philosophy. Mm. Yeah, really interesting point about it predating religion as well. I was only reading the other day about Catholicism or Christianity, I suppose, being pitched as a philosophy initially um, in its early days and how you have this kind of like stew at the 2000 years ago where there was like this kind of all these things were emerging out of. And I find myself drawn to that time in a sense to kind of, you know, piece yeah. together where these things came from cool. what was the you know movement of ideas because like i mean seneca was around at the same time as jesus and you're reading him and you're like oh this is yeah you know <laughs> these guys are pretty you know almost modern in thinking which is really interesting but um like saint yeah. saint paul went to athens right and he <laughs> yeah. made arguments like he went to yeah. athens and he was like hey i'm gonna stand at the altar of the unknown god i'm gonna i'm gonna argue you into this right that's mind-blowing and i think you're right we just don't think about that a lot uh but it's insane it's amazing I think too, I mean, I think about this a lot talking with students to like encourage them to think of Christianity as something that's philosophical, like more than just a religious tradition, but also a source for philosophy. Uh, You read, you know, we're reading the parable of the Good Samaritan with some students yesterday. And Jesus totally sounds like Socrates. He's in an argument with this legal scholar and they're talking about, look, we know we're supposed to love our neighbor, grant that assumption. Who is our neighbor? We disagree on that assumption. And Jesus is making an argument for a really expansive definition. The guy he's arguing with, you know, is assuming a pretty narrow definition. And they're reasoning it out. That's like a major ethical question that they're having the conversation about. Or like Book of Job, you know, the start of the Book of Job, Satan and God are duking it out. Oh, God God says, people love me because I'm God. And Satan says, people love you because you help them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's, you know, that's kind of like the opening question of the the chapter two of the Republic. Mm. Socrates, you know, people, Socrates says we should want to be good. And uh, Glaucon says we should want people to think we're good. Or we should want the benefits of people thinking that we're good. Is there any kind of difference? These are philosophical questions that we're definitely 
just like popping up in that period 2500 to 2000 years ago and clearly like we're, we're unshakable regardless of which uh, tradition you were part of yep and our perennial kind of issues as well i mean that kind of yeah but that's kind of what i mean by being bereft of tradition like the way i was raised in a secular environment was that religion was stupid and that it was essentially a mistake that people had thought something very stupid for a long time and then we figured it out after um so before like the enlightenment everybody was just kind of dumb and so they, it just cut off this entire strand of human history and de demeaned it basically as worthless and um, and i think that's kind of becomes because what do you i if you say to people this is just like stories or people trying to like you know come up with like simple people trying to make stories about things you create that impression i think and for a lot of young people they're kind of cut off probably from would and so in that sense do you encourage religion to be looked at as a way of life or as a philosophy as kind of um addressing these ethical questions that we still experience now rather than like a dogma church kind of element yeah. I think one of the really interesting things about, say, the history of Catholicism, because this is what I'm most familiar with, mm -hmm. is that uh, um, it is really continuous with and sometimes just overlaps with the history of philosophy in the West, right? By the time that we get to Augustine and all the way through Aquinas, uh, and maybe even a little bit after that, certainly during the medieval period, uh, the the sort of uh, philosophical tradition, at least the, the philosophical tradition as we've conceived of it in the academy for the past 150, 200 years, uh, is just happening in monasteries. It's happening in universities. They're being uh, founded by and then entirely staffed by clerics, right, uh, in the church. Um, that, I think, is, is not an accident. I mean, I think Catholicism, and again, I speak just from experience in, in this tradition. I'm sure there are other religions uh, that are like this, or I'm sure they, they sort of have similar relationships to philosophy, or some of them do. But Catholicism is, I think, a deeply philosophical religion. Now, uh, obviously, I think it goes beyond uh, a philosophical sort of way of life. Uh, it involves like a theological dimension. It involves orthodoxy, it involves doctrine, it involves believing things. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it sometimes involves believing things in an attempt to understand them. Now, I think, you know, that might go against the kind of Socratic ideal of kind of mm -hmm. virtuous ignorance, right? Sort of, I'm not going to believe it unless I fully understand it. I'm just going to debate with you until we get there. And often we're just not going to get there. So I'm going to kind of remain in this skepticism and approach the world critically, you know, uh, uh, every chance that I get. Well, Zane Anselm says, you know, I don't believe because I understand. I believe so that I can understand, right? Uh, my faith informs the quest for understanding. Mm -hmm. And then we find echoes of that, you know, in a lot of thinkers, some, some who are not even themselves uh, particularly deep in any religious tradition. William James talks about how you sometimes have to believe the thing in order to even fully understand or evaluate it. If I said to my wife before we got married, look, I'm not going to marry you until I have 100% mathematical scientific certainty that we are a good match, I would not be married to her right now because you're never going to get that. You've just got to believe, you know what? we're good for each other, we're committed, and we're going to make it work. And then you go into it, and then you start understanding that relationship and that person and, and you know, why that was a good decision or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, so, so to me, uh, Catholicism is a, a very, you know, it's certainly a way of life, and it's a deeply philosophical way of life. But I think it's a really interesting case in that there's this this other element as well. That's exactly what I'm yeah kind of leaning towards here, which is that leap of faith almost that has to because mm -hmm. like I've gotten really into Stoicism, but obviously I'm still entertaining the Catholicism, so I'm not really satisfied with it because at some point Stoicism you know became part of Catholicism as well or Christianity, um, and so yeah I'm kind of the the I've heard it said before that like believing in God is like a precondition to to knowing God or to like, you know, you don't get it unless you kind of get in, in the pool in a sense. Um, and I suppose for you, was there, I know you talk about it in the book. Did you have to make that decision or was it a case that, you know, you were always just kind of, you know, you always just believed in religion. It was always, you know, were you ever on the outside looking in and then had to, you know, 
rejoin? Oh, totally. I think Megan and I have both have experiences like this, and they're they're very distinctive. Do you want to start, Megan? Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I'm a convert. So I uh, joined the church in college and went through the whole rigmarole. So uh, like the year, one upshot of Catholicism that probably attracted me subliminally, subconsciously to it was that there is a really nice process with classes and steps that you could undertake. Uh, it doesn't just happen like you just wake up one day and be like, I believe in God. Instead, there's an opportunity to have a lot of dialogue um, with uh, with folks that are in the tradition about whether this uh, the Catholic way of life and and, uh, and belief in God makes sense for you and whether you understand what it is that you say you're believing in and what it will mean yeah. for you to think that God is a person in the world that you could have a relationship with. So uh, I'm always a little bit... Um, raise an eyebrow at people who think like you either believe in God or you don't like it's a light switch. It's either on or it's off. Mm. It's kind of like you either believe in science or you don't. Well, okay. Like believing in science means having a certain kind of orientation and hope for the scientific process. It means like really um, understanding some things in science and it means having questions about other parts of science. And then some parts of science you're vaguely aware are out there, but you really don't get, I don't understand quantum mechanics at all. I guess I believe in it, but like, you know, it's a, this dimension of science that I'm still getting my head around. Same with God and with like somebody who says that they believe in God and that's an important commitment, that belief and faith is an important part of their, um, why they conceive of their life as good is like, well, you know, I feel pretty confident that, uh, that there's a kind of love that's an organizing principle in my life and in the world that I live in and that that love comes from God. And I really think I'm, I'm tracking that and understanding what that means for me right now. If you ask me some like complex theological doctrine, like uh, tell me exactly how transubstantiation could work and what the most likely process is for that and where the logical paradoxes are going to get solved. Oh God, I don't know, man. That's <laughs> like quantum mechanics. Like I think about it. I I, I want to think about it, um, mm. but I, my confidence is like so different in that. Um, and I, you know, when I was first thinking about. Uh, joining the church one it was I was really not led to it by like I've solved enough of my I've answered enough of my questions about Catholicism to be ready to like join the party um, it was much more of like a feeling like this is a like a calling like discerning like this is a, a direction in life that I'm meant to be pursuing and, and God is going to be part of that and I'm going to learn more what that belief means by walking this path um, but I also think that, and I encourage this with students, like the group I was talking to yesterday, um, if you think that faith has to be the sawn off thing, you're either all or nothing, you've got it all in your head and you have all the answers, or you're, or it's dead to you and you, you don't have any connection with God, like you've set yourself up for failure because those, like, nobody ever, I think, is in this position where they're not even curious about the religious questions anymore. And I know very few sincere, authentic religious believers who think they've got the whole thing like figured out. Um, and they know, even if they say they're confident in everything, they know exactly what it is that they say they're confident in. And that's why philosophy is such an important part of religious life, is like the joy of kind of figuring this all out is that the questions come to you from all, all sources, from your experience, from learning that religion's part of the world that you're in, um, uh, from other people's descriptions of their experiences with God. And then philosophy helps you try to organize the pieces into a coherent story for your own life. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, my story is, is different than Megan's in that I was, you know, I was going to say born Catholic, but I was, I was born and very shortly thereafter became Catholic <laughs> yes, uh, in my kitchen sink no, because my mom thought I was, I was born prematurely and she's like, ah, I better baptize this baby. Uh, <laughs> so she did. That's the most so, Irish thing I've know, ever heard. From, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom, her last name is Skelly. She is. Irish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, so, so I was, you know, from literally before I can remember, uh, I was Catholic. Uh, and for me, the experience of, of questioning my religion uh, came through, you know, small and, and, and sometimes bigger moments of examination or, or even crisis, I would say. Um, so, so the way I would describe it is, you know, you, you, you're born, you're born, you become Catholic and they tell you like, look, here's orthodoxy. Here's what you, here's what you believe. You believe that this bread is the body and blood of Christ. And you're like, that's what I believe. That is, that is, that is amazing. And you think like, how is that possible? Right. 
Uh, and is it possible? Because certainly, like, you're, you're not just going to, like, you know, take that and be like, well, yeah, of course, like, metaphysically, I'm sure that works. You know, you're going to be like, how is that possible? Uh, and so you've got to do this kind of seeking bit, right? The faith-seeking understanding that we had talked about a second ago. The way I think about it is, is, is I guess, you know, I feel like people who are born into religion uh, relate to God or might relate to God. Certainly this is the case for me. In the way that, that, that I relate to my family, like my parents, right? I didn't choose those people. Like, I am just, I'm here because of them, but I never, like, looked at them and I was like, yeah, these people are great. Like, I'm going to hang out with them. Like, I was just born into it, right? And and I've got a lot of beliefs about my family. I believe that, you know, my family has my best uh, uh, sort of, uh, my the best for me at heart, uh, that they're good people, generally good people, etc., now, could that be false? Well, of course it could. My parents might be psychopaths and just really good at, at you know, uh, uh, hiding this or something. And I might hit a time in my life. I did, you know, when I was in high school where I was like, I'm going to borrow the car. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, no, oh, you don't understand me. You know, and I thought like, oh, like, you know, they, they don't care about me. They don't love me, you know, because my vision of the good for my life is so different from theirs. But you work through those, those, those cases by... Sure, like calling everything into question. Is it possible that they don't love me? Okay, sure, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, you know, is it possible that God doesn't exist or that transubstantiation is metaphysically impossible? Of course, like let's consider those things. Uh, but there is kind of a, a, a commitment uh, that's already there, right? And, and I feel like that's different uh, in my life from the commitment that I, that I made with my wife, right? I did choose that person. We chose each other, right? Um, now, you know, once you're in the religion, once you're in the worldview, uh, uh, how does how does it differ? I, I mean, I don't know. I, nobody can be in both of the positions, I suppose. Um, but for me, that is very much how how my sort of uh, questioning happened. It would come at these different moments where something that I believed about God, that God is all good and all powerful and all loving, was suddenly challenged, right? My son was born and he was uh, at birth, he had a, a birth defect and we didn't know if he was gonna survive. And working through that, I thought, like, you know, in a very visceral way, not like in a theoretical abstract way, I thought like, God, like how how could you do this? And I thought like, how could a good God do this? And then I, you know, had to kind of grapple with that philosophically. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people come out on the other side and they've reconciled that and they say, yeah, man, this has changed the way that I see God or understand God in the same way that you might sort of change the way that you understand your family. Say like, yeah, okay, they're much more complex than I thought. Uh, uh, and sometimes people come to the opposite conclusion, right? They say, you know what? No, this isn't compatible. Um, it's certainly in my case, I've always kind of come out on the other side thinking, gosh, God is a lot stranger than I thought he was. Yeah, that kind of confrontation with suffering and malevolence and kind of reminds me of the book of Job again, that uh, the bet over... Yeah. the soul and how that goes and yeah, I, yeah um there's so much there to unpack but there's something megan said that i really wanted to jump on because it was one of my favorite things from the book i think um which was telling morally thick stories and you were saying about how catholicism can help you and philosophy can help you inform the story of your life um and i wondered if we could maybe try and you know for people that are listening how they can tell better stories or how they can tell thicker stories because it's something that I think I've done in my own life particularly with people maybe if you have a relationship with somebody and they're you know you think you've got them figured out and then obviously they're more complicated than your ridiculously narrow stories can pin them down to so this constant evolution as you grow more telling different kinds of stories um, I wonder you know what was it that made you include that and you know is there anything you can give to people about it Yeah. Do you want me to take this one, Megan? Or, or Sorry, I'm just kind of throwing them out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, of course, of course. So one of the things that originally uh, uh, got me thinking about this was uh, reading Elizabeth Anscombe. So Anscombe is just is my favorite philosopher. And warning, but also like, you know, uh, I think this is one of the wonderful things about her. She was a student of Wittgenstein. Oh, man, I love Wittgenstein. And she's just brilliant. Yeah, He's she's amazing. Of... She was like writing. Um, go, go for it. Yeah, no, I was going to say I read the Tractatus, which is like 30 pages long. It oh. took me about six months. I nearly died. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then like you could just you could reread it every six months for the rest of your life and keep learning new things. And just uh, trying to end philosophy so, you know... was a noble ambition. <laughs> but, um, 
Sorry, go ahead. We try to do that every 30 years. We try to end <laughs> philosophy. But yeah, yeah so Anscombe, you know, she, she's incredibly dense. You know, she's, she's writing about um, intention and action and what, what is that. But the way that she approaches it is um, she says, look, consider how describing what you're doing can actually change the action itself, right? So if, I, uh, if I'm like, you know, pumping water from a well, this is her example, right? A classic example. I'm pumping water from a well. It's also true that I might be tapping out the rhythm of happy birthday, right? Uh, but if you asked me, like, why are you tapping out the rhythm of happy birthday? I might say like, oh gosh, I didn't even know I was doing that, right? Uh, so the way that you would describe what you're doing actually changes the nature of your action. Now take two really simple cases. Suppose I arrive late to a meeting and I say, oh my gosh, you guys, I woke up late and the traffic was so bad. And then somebody, you know, like the police stopped me because I was speeding and they, you know, they, but I wasn't speeding. It was their fault. And then, you know, there's no way I could have got here on time. Uh, I've told a story that excuses me from any responsibility, right? That says I'm a perfectly virtuous person. The world just frustrated my desire to be here on time. Different story, I come in and I say, you know what, you guys, I looked at the clock this morning and I hit snooze. And I'm sorry because I knew that, that you know, I was disrespecting your time. I knew I was risking being late and I did it anyway. I did it anyway. I'm so sorry about that. In this version, I'm taking responsibility for what I've done, right? And I'm telling sort of a true story in which like, yeah, I lack some virtue. Now, one of those stories is true in sort of the imagined stare. One of those stories is true. And how we tell that story, how we tell the story, not just of particular actions, because that's important, but also just the story of our life more generally, right? Am I uh, a religious person because I have this sort of desire to seek and understand and have this relationship with this transcendent God? Or am I a religious person because I'm afraid of what would happen if I wasn't, you know? I sort of, I find this kind of way of avoiding uncomfortable questions or vice versa. Am I an atheist? Because like, I just like don't want to give up the power or control that I feel over my life. Or I mean, am I an atheist? Because like authentically I've considered the question, I've considered the arguments and I just can't in good faith, you know, make that leap or whatever. These are huge questions. These are huge stories. They're the kind of stories that you tell in a philosophical apology, right? Like Augustine did in the confessions. Uh, but they're gonna shape the way that you see your life. They're gonna change literally how you act in the world. Yeah, and we think, the, I mean, this is, it's one of the most abstract topics that we cover in the book, but uh, it's also one of the most commonly applicable, like philosophical pauses that you should have. Am I telling the right story about what I'm doing? So here's maybe, mm. Uh, another example that's more morally serious. Let's suppose that you are uh, starting a company and you're taking all kinds of risks. Like you talk to your board, your investing board, and you're like, we are going to be ready to bring this product to market in six months, no problem, knowing that you got no, you're, you've achieved none of the steps. Um, and you people, you get into arguments with people that you work with, and you fire them and you say, I'm doing this because I'm like a really tough minded leader and I'm going to drive this project forward. You're telling yourself this story about what you're doing. That's got a like a goal. Like I'm the kind of person that cares so much about bringing this product to market that I'll do whatever it takes. And you're probably believing the story. And there's still this open question about whether you're telling the truth. And we've seen this like, you know, in spectacular fashion with some of the Silicon Valley blow ups. But we all face this also in our day to day jobs. Am I giving this really mean report to this colleague because I care about uh, the, the project or am I doing it because I'm a jerk or like I wanted to hurt their feelings or I wanted to bully them. And we all know people too that can't, you know, they can't really realize that there are other intentions that they might be acting on that they're not aware of. But somebody who's trying to lead a philosophical, morally serious kind of life we'll pause, you know, pretty often and say like, all right, am I telling people the truth about what we're doing? Am I telling the people the truth about my intentions? Do I have the right intentions in this case? Am I willing to say that I've got the wrong intentions and change the, the, the story that I'm telling? And that is pretty serious, morally significant work that you can't detect whether or not that's happening if you just look at like 
did the person succeed? And we live in a culture where we just, you know, at the end of the day, we tend to say like, did their product make it to market? Like, did they win? Did they get the highest paycheck? Did their group uh, prevail for a long period of time? And that, like, just looking at the consequences without knowing the story, you don't know if there's anything significant that's happening. And so I think that this is kind of, this kind of the er virtue for all of the other philosophical goals you might yes. set for yourself is learning, learning to detect your own bullshit. And we spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about why that's an important skill. Yes, that is exactly where like I was hoping to get which it's like that it's the kind of Socratic self-knowledge or that like self-inquiry of questioning your motivations and your intentions that can like nobody else I mean other people can question your motivations I suppose but ultimately they can't really affect them in the same way that you can. It's like this inner responsibility that I've never you know you don't really hear it talked about anywhere else that I, it's not something that I would be is common parlance but like exactly like the example paul gave you can show up late and blame everybody else and that can be your modus operandi for everything until one day you kind of do it differently and have to say oh i actually did this and i like i i do that myself a lot and catch myself saying things being like oh that was because of this and then you're like well hang on a second was yeah. it because of that or was it because you know you stopped to get the coffee yeah. 10 minutes before and this yeah. kind of holding yourself um, responsible or culpability. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, think about So I just have to jump in and say, like, the word I think that I would put on this, mm. this inner responsibility that you're talking about mm -hmm. is agency, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it can feel like a really abstract and theoretical concept, but it is. It's exactly what you're talking about, right? Mm. Uh, I find in my life, that the way that I sort of grow as an agent, as a person in responsibility, is that the stories that I tell about myself suddenly become incompatible, right? Like I'm the kind of person that cares about other people uh, and and suddenly, you know, I, I just cannot avoid the, the fact that like, that is not compatible with this thing that I did to this person, right? Or, or in my case, it's always like uh, my kids. My kids are revealing all of my vices, Ooh, right? I like I, I'm like, oh, I'm just such a loving person. I'm such a caring person. And then like, suddenly I find myself just like, no, I won't read that book to you. And then I'm like, my gosh, like yeah. they out of love want to spend a minute with me. And I, out of this like desire to like increase my status in the world, want to answer 10 emails. Like, what am I doing, right? Like the way that I, I sort of have this story I tell about myself and the way that that suddenly, again, in, in hopefully minor ways, but sometimes in bigger ways, sort of causes this crisis of agency that I then need to step back and take stock of and say, how am I gonna start telling the story of my life in a more accurate way, but also a way that's not so depressing that I cannot move forward, right? Because if I ever came to believe about myself, I am just an evil person, I would just go to bed. I just lay down and not stand up. I don't know how, that's, what else you can it. do, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that has to be kind of somewhere in between. Um, but yeah, also I suppose kind of nurturing yourself. It's an in interesting example with kids, like where you have, because it's kind of other people really that bring up that stuff, isn't it? Like, and I wonder in a kind of digital age where we're all kind of separated from each other, um, is it easier to just be, you know, minister of your own propaganda online and offline mm -hmm. and kind of avoid those situations where you have to actually change the story? You know, what, what do you think can motivate people to change that story? Um, because maybe there's enough space now to just slip between the cracks and not do it. Well, and this is this is where you know the Greek philosophers also had some amazing things to tell us. We talk about this a bit in our chapter on love, but mm. Aristotle and you see this even in Socrates. They think of our um, our very close friends and family members as playing this role of helping basically cure us of some of our bullshit. <laughs> Um, Aristotle talks about this like really important kind of friendship as being uh, as though you see a second self in your friend. Um, and you can totally imagine this with like Paul and his children. Like he sees a second self in his son. And when you love somebody that much, you see not only the good in them, but you see their failings and those reflect back to you the, the things that might be, you might be not willing to deal with in your own life. And that's the, the, the extraordinary power of this kind of love and friendship. 
but also why it's like really hard um and why somebody like aristotle thought that you couldn't have it with very many people because it's it's really demanding first as an investment but also um when you've got that kind of reflection coming back to you about your own good life and who you really are uh you know, we, we want to dose that out. <laughs> it would be awful to have to get that from every single relationship all the time. That would that would be maybe, maybe make it very hard. I'd also say, too, just to jump in on this question about, like, self-curation in the world of uh, uh, TikTok <laughs> yeah. or, like, Instagram or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, Plato in the Republic has got a section where he's debating this exact question, right? So he is saying, look... We should want to be virtuous, both because it's beneficial to us. If we're virtuous, people are going to trust us. They're going to give us things that they otherwise wouldn't. And because it's good in and of itself. Just like uh, this goes all the way back to something Megan was talking about uh, earlier. Glaucon comes out and he says, okay, do you, want to, do you want to actually convince me of that or just seem to have convinced me of that? And he's like, no, I want to actually convince you. He goes, okay, well, consider this case. What if somebody finds a ring? And they put it on, and they become invisible, yeah, and they Lord can the do Rings whatever trip. they want without any consequences. Boom! Like yeah, yeah. Tolkien. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. He he was at up. least inspired. I won't say he plagiarized, but he was at least inspired by this. It's called the Ring of Gaijus, right? Uh, uh, okay. And then you think like, um, well, okay. How is ancient philosophy applicable to our lives? Uh, have you ever been on Yik Yak? <laughs> Yik Yak is this app, this new app. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's new, it's also old, they shut it down and now it's back up, but it's it's anonymous, right? You're just posting, people within a five mile radius can see what you're posting totally anonymously. And there's a serious question of whether this is revealing our moral characters, because there's a lot of filth on Yik Yak. There's a lot of, if you make some comments anonymous on the internet, you're gonna get a lot of stuff. And there's a serious question, does this just reveal our characters and show that actually we are not who we present ourselves as, right? Like when we're in public, we are curating ourselves socially. When we're posting on Instagram, but you know, with our faces and behind our names, we are projecting a certain image, a wholesomeness or whatever. Is this revealing that like, we're actually not committed to being virtuous. We just wanna seem virtuous. Or is there something about the anonymity itself that kind of encourages that behavior, right? Is 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 the anonymity and the, the sort of monstrous behavior, is that the sort of facade, right? The thing that we're using to, to feel some sort of power or something. Those are fascinating questions. And like Megan says, they go right back to the Republic or they go right back to the Nicomachean ethics. And you can look in there and learn things fairly directly about the world that we live in, about our lives. Yeah, and that, I mean, wow, that's such a brilliant example as well with the yik yak. I didn't know about that, but I had kind of assumed with anonymity that it can bring out the worstness or show the worstness. I don't know. But I thought, yeah, that's it was really interesting there, Megan, as well, which we were going towards, which was love and that you, you talk about in the book love as this loving attention onto a person, but not like the idealized version of who they are, but who they actually are in a sense and appreciating them for their flaws and for the human stuff. Um, and so maybe this is a bit of a bold move, but is the motivational thing for those stories a kind of love as well? I mean, to actually start to see yourself more clearly so that you might, well, maybe know yourself, but that you you love truth or you love the actual reality. I, I mean, lofty, one but. of the most beautiful things that we get, and it's a great question. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful things we get from Plato is this idea. Again, it's not like a light switch. It's not you either love the truth or you hate it. Um, it's loving the truth is something that you have to work on every day of your life in a new context with yourself and with the people around you and with the kinds of questions that are facing you. And it's something that we have to commit ourselves to and hold ourselves to. And uh, and this idea that really having loving relationships with other people is going to require learning to tell the truth about yourself and to understand the truth about them. There's that like, you know, truth dimension of it. If you don't want shallow relationships or if you want to get what's really good about this virtue, you have to care about that. But also this weird like hopefulness. I mean, this is one of the great puzzles of philosophy is like, why think why do we think that the truth is going to be good for us like what is our, our reason for assuming that the truth is good it might be that like you know we get the truth with a capital t and it turns out that the world is going to end 
in three years or the truth with the capital T turns out to be that all of our projects are ultimately meaningless um or everything that we think we do to help other people is actually making their lives worse like there are all kinds of things that we could discover to be true that would seem to be just like horrible things for us and and the kind of like you know crazy assumption of virtue ethics and of a lot of religious traditions is that uh, that's not going to happen. Like, what, you know, this concern for the truth is going to get us out of Plato's cave. It's going to get us into a better situation. It's going to be good for us in our lives. And another key question in philosophy is, like, where does that confidence come from that the truth is going to be good for us if we uh, keep every day trying to find it? Um, and I, I think, like, when we think about... Uh, uh, when we think about love and personal relationships and self-knowledge, that's when these questions really get their bite. Like, would discovering the truth about myself really be good for me? And where's my confidence in that? Um, that's, a, that's a really deep philosophical question. Or realizing, like, I love you and I know that you're an imperfect, incomplete person. Um, this is the stuff that, like, some of the best philosophical conversations are made of. And maybe why, like, we can't ever set these questions down. Yeah, I had a I had a question there that I was trying to think of, but that was so good I completely forgot. <laughs> so that was uh, really like yeah, where the the rubber hits the road, I suppose, in terms of your personal relationships and seeing people as they are. Um, and uh, yeah, the loving truth that was it, and that there seems to be a leap of faith there as well. That I know we're talking about a leap of faith in Catholicism, but there's also a leap of faith in that the truth is good. Because, as you pointed out, yeah. it could be terrible. <laughs> like, it could make things way yeah. worse temporarily. And I think there's an interest, and to go back to the technology thing maybe a little bit, I think there's an interest in movement with, like, the metaverse stuff and things that is this kind of belief that reality isn't good or isn't, like, you know, like, we don't need reality. You know, what's what's so great about that? Um, but I guess the truth and reality are kind of be the same. <laughs> yeah, let's just, you know, yeah, I mean, jack it up and, you know, make it unbelievable. Um, I mean, but, look at like, uh, look, look at the way in which these kinds of debates just crop up over the history of philosophy, even right? Like Gnosticism or this view yeah. that like the material world is all so corrupted and just so uh, innately bad that we need to transcend it, right? I mean, this is an old idea. Is and this it's modern one that, that shows up in a lot of places. It's, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't say that. You said that. I'm going to put that I, on a, a yeah, quote and post I it on well, Facebook. <laughs> I, can, I can see it, all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, certainly. Certainly, it, I, I, I think it's a... It's a great question. Like, what, what what sort of relationship does it have to this idea of Gnosticism, or what is what is the the sort of desire behind that? Right. Like, I find myself, you know, sometimes really sucked into online life, like really sucked into Facebook and getting very tied up in you know how I look there or like what my friends are doing or whatever. Why? Like, why is that? Right. Like, what is it about my day to day life or my day to day reality? that I'm avoiding. And is it good that I'm avoiding it? Or is it bad that I'm avoiding it? Uh, again, I just think, I think philosophy is right there uh, in, in, in the weeds with all of these questions uh, in a way that I, I just find really, really enlightening. Yeah, and that there are different kinds of philosophy, I suppose. There are one, philosophies that are kind of playing out. The modern Gnosticism thing is interesting. I actually interviewed a woman from Epic Games at one point, and during the interview, talking about... Um, their upcoming metaverse projects and talking about like putting people in VR meetings and stuff. And uh, she, and I thought it was really interesting, but then at one point she said, you know, something like she said, what's so great about reality anyway? And I kind of thought, well, I don't, you know, That's what I, people it, say. it seems quite <laughs> significant. Um, I probably, I, I, I lean towards the like Musashi, you know, you got to bend to reality, not try and bend reality to you. But um, sure. that's, I guess that's a philosophical sure. issue. Um, so, yeah, totally. I mean, this has been a, an amazing conversation. I know we're approaching here at the hour. So um, how was how the book received and what do you hope to go on to do with it? What comes next and, you know, what's come down the line? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my favorite part about having the book out there in the world is that uh, I can now just have the discussions that I have in class with my students 
with anybody that I meet, right? Nice. I talked to a group of educators, K-12 educators, a couple of weeks ago for eight hours about philosophy. We all sat around a table. There was there were breaks, but we just talked about this stuff for eight hours. And, uh, you know, that was just phenomenal. Um, I'm working on a class, uh, or I, I, I've been teaching a class for a couple of semesters now on uh, work in the good life. It's kind of like the good life method at work. Uh, you know, how do you find meaning and purpose in your work and in business? Uh, and, you know, what, what sort of role should finding meaning and purpose even play? Maybe we should just like get rid of those expectations and just work for the money and then go find meaning and purpose elsewhere. So I've been leading a bunch of students through through that course uh, and, um, you know, would, would love to keep working on that. But I see all of this as kind of, of a piece, right? It's all sort of this philosophical approach to everyday life. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's certainly where my thinking has been going is, is in the direction of philosophy of work. Awesome. And what about you, yeah, I think on my end, we're, we're in, like, we're in, like, week eight or whatever since the book came out. I think we're just about to hit the, like, two-month mark because it came out on January 1st or 4th. So we're, um, we're still kind of learning about what people uh, will love or hate about the book. I've gotten a couple really interesting critical emails and a lot of really enthusiastic fun emails. Um, on the critical email front, I think you definitely kind of touched a nerve in our criticism of design thinking and positive psychology, and those have been interesting debates yeah. to have with other yeah. academics, uh, which is like, I'm ready. I was kind of hoping that would happen. Um, on the people who love it, maybe, maybe one of the biggest quasi-surprises is the number of emails I'll get from parents. Notre Dame parents and college student parents, but also parents of like high school kids or folks. I, I was talking to some folks about the book a couple weekends ago and uh, they bought it because they're like, man, I really, really want to talk about philosophy with my son. And I just like don't know how to get it going. I know we need to do this and I really want to do it, but I just don't have a starting place in the book or the, or the audio book or podcast like yours are a chance to get this going in our relationship. And that I love. If I have kind of yeah. one big wish for the next few years, it's as we're coming out of the pandemic and we're all starting to talk to each other again and we're back in school, um, that universities like where Paul and I work and high schools like the teachers that Paul was interacting with a few weekends ago and these parents that we all feel like equipped to start talking with younger folks about this again. Um, and that we kind of start that, that our book makes people a lot more optimistic about the role that philosophy can play in deepening the relationships with people that they love, especially coming off of a crisis. And I think that uh, if we can get like a bunch of uh, a bunch of parents or a bunch of people who are looking to form relationships with people who are feeling a little distant right now to think philosophy might help them, that would be huge. That's awesome. And that's what I found with it as well, is it's an amazing doorway into those ideas. And for particularly with the virtue ethics, because you just don't hear, you know, enough on it, I think. Um, and it's so, I found it so ethics. like so beneficial. But yeah, I think when people think about virtue ethics, I think they think of like Victorian virtues, Stuffy, like kind fold of. your napkin <laughs> the right way or like yeah. dress the right way. And it's not that at all. It's about yeah. like. You know, it's about having the courage to ask hard questions. It's about um, having the courage to tell the truth about why you do what you do. It's about like be, you know, being confident about things that you really care about and being able to tell people why they matter to you, but also being skeptical about things that, you know, you're being told you should care about, but you don't feel it anymore. Um, and those, you know, that's a different ball of wax entirely. Yeah, I mean, I, we could go on for hours with this, I'm sure. There's, um, it's an amazing topic, and thank you both so much for this. Um, I really appreciate it. I've thoroughly thank enjoyed you. the conversation. No, yeah, and absolutely. Thank you so much. I really, honestly, so much, and for all the work that you're doing. I'll put the link to the book in the description as well. Encourage everybody to check out. Is there anywhere else that would be good to find you for people that are listening? So embarrassingly, I'm on TikTok. <laughs> if you go to at Prof Blaschko, you can see me do a bunch of philosophy on the internet. We've got a, a, a reading guide on uh, online at goodlifemethodbook.com. Uh, so if people wanted to start a reading group, if they wanted to, you know, share this with uh, with with their student, with their college aged, high school aged uh, 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 kids, uh, we've got some resources there and some resources for educators. Um, so that's certainly a, a thing to check out if if, if uh, anyone's interested. 
Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and there's a webpage for our course at Notre Dame, God in the Good Life, .edu, and uh, you can you know check out a bunch of stuff on my webpage if you're interested in reading more philosophy. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, the link to purchase the Good Life Method is in the description below. Really encourage you to read it and check it out and to apply it to your own life. I found it very beneficial and it's opened a lot of very interesting doors for me in my thought. Um, if you want to follow along with the podcast, uh, hit that follow button on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, follow along on Instagram at man underscore McCann because there's loads more fascinating conversations coming that you are definitely going to want to be involved in. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you.